I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With the failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Welcome to the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast series for 2022. My name is Ethan Montanino. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics to provide insights and knowledge relevant to the ACSS Summit in December. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Zala. Dr. Zala is a research fellow and senior lecturer within the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. He has contributed extensively to the fields of great power politics and the management of nuclear weapons. Dr. Zala's research features in the Australian Journal of International Affairs, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and the Review of International Studies, just to name a few. In addition, he has an extensive research footprint covering nuclear politics, global order, and strategic relations in the Asia-Pacific. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Zala. It's great to have you here to join us for this podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, we might jump straight into things. Would you be able to give us a brief overview of the world of nuclear politics in 2022? What's what's happened, any major events, and specifically if you could look at Australia and the Asia-Pacific? Sure. So it's been um, a reasonably eventful year, a somewhat unusually eventful year in nuclear politics so far uh, for a couple of reasons. The first, of course... Uh, will be the obvious one that will probably come to mind uh, to most listeners, which is uh, to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier in the year, uh, which has featured uh, a couple of times uh, the Russians have made not quite explicit but pretty close to explicit nuclear threats. And so questions of nuclear deterrence, uh, the role that nuclear weapons play uh, in international politics have sort of been back on the agenda, particularly in mainstream media, in ways that they really haven't for a very long time. Uh, and then there's been a couple of multilateral things as well. Um, with the first meeting of uh, the parties to a new treaty that's only been with us since 2017, uh, which is uh, sort of colloquially known as the Nuclear Ban Treaty, um, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, so that's basically a, a whole bunch of states who don't have nuclear weapons have uh, negotiated that, signed that, and are trying to outlaw nuclear weapons over time. So they had their first uh, um, meeting of the, the parties to that treaty. Interestingly for Australia, um, Australia prior to this had boycotted the negotiations, hadn't turned up, uh, were quite opposed, and uh, we joined with our other allies, um, mainly the other nuclear arms states and states like Australia that receive a nuclear deterrence guarantee from someone else, uh, in sort of opposing that treaty and saying, no, we should be focusing on the ones that exist already. Uh, but after the change of government here, after the election, uh, the new Albanese government actually decided to send someone to the conference, even though we're not a party to it, to the treaty, right. but just to be there, to be part of the discussions, to sort of kick the door open a little bit to some sort of engagement with that process. So they sent a, a backbencher MP, 
Um, so that was a sort of an interesting development on the Australian side. And then currently, um, at time of recording, there is a review conference going on, uh, which is meant to happen every five years. This one got delayed because of COVID, like everything else, of uh, probably the major nuclear weapons treaty, uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, so that's going on in New York right now. So there's quite a bit of diplomatic multilateral activity mm. um, going on that wouldn't normally necessarily be happening. Uh, and then, of course, after the announcement late last year uh, of the new AUKUS partnership between the United States, the UK and Australia, uh, which has a nuclear component, not weapons related, but um, it's about nuclear propulsion, nuclear propelled submarines. Some of the uh, the politics around that, a few more announcements and things have been swirling. So that's sort of been there in the mix as well. So there's a bit going on. Yeah, certainly an interesting time to be in the field of nuclear politics. Mm. So we might move into um, a couple of broad definitions just so our listeners, if they're not aware of major topics in this field, that they can kind of get an understanding of, of some of the things that we're mentioning. mentioning. So would you be able to define for us, first of all, deterrence in the nu- nuclear sense, nuclear latency? That's, that's another word that's thrown around quite a lot in this field. Sure. Um, non-proliferation, so in terms of the, the non-proliferation treaty and, and its relevance there. And then finally, overarching idea of mutually assured destruction and its relevance to nuclear weapons. Yeah, sure. So you've got all the, all the big important ones in there, so we mm. just work through them. Um, so I mentioned actually deterrence already, right, in terms of Australia having an extended deterrence guarantee uh, from the United States uh, and also uh, the, the Russian threats as part of its invasion of Ukraine and everything that's followed after that being part of it, trying to deter anyone else from getting involved. So deterrence is all about making a threat to compel another state to either do or not do something. And it's generally to not do something. Mm. Um, generally speaking, when we talk about nuclear deterrence, what we're saying is the threat of use of nuclear weapons if another state either uh, attacks you um, with conventional forces or more commonly with nuclear forces. Yeah. Right? So in other words, when we talk about nuclear deterrence, if a state says we have a nuclear uh, arsenal, we have a, a nuclear weapon stockpile, and the goal of that stockpile is to provide a deterrent effect, they're basically saying we're planning on never using these. We don't ever want to use these. These aren't weapons of war that we've sort of got in the toolbox that we'll use in a various circumstance. What we're saying is the use is the threat. We're saying don't invade us, um, don't attack our forces, don't do X, Y, and Z. Or in the case of what we call an extended deterrence guarantee, you're extending that to someone else. You're saying don't invade them. So essentially extending the umbrella of, of your own deterrence. So exactly. in Australia's terms, the US extending that yep. to its allies, to, to Australia, for instance. Yeah. So uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, we, we think of these states as, we often use the phrase of sitting under the US nuclear umbrella, mm. that uh, the threat from the US uh, to a potential adversary isn't just don't attack us, it's don't attack our allies either. And that um, plays out in the NATO context as well. So that's the deterrent side of things. Latency refers to um, states who are building up the capability to get close to building a nuclear weapon but haven't done it. So they're latent. Yeah. In other words, it means they could build a nuclear weapon more quickly than other states could. They've sort of kept the door ajar. And there's all sorts of different ways you can do that. Um, basically, the technical way of looking at this is we call it control of the nuclear fuel cycle, but you can, don't have to get too technical about this. It's basically having nuclear material at your disposal, uh, nuclear know-how, knowledge, having scientific expertise, and then having the infrastructure that you would need. 
So it might be that you need to enrich uranium, for example. Well, do you have enrichment facilities? And you can use enrichment facilities for a nuclear power program, for example. Well, that gives you a, a little bit of latency. You're more latent than someone who doesn't have enrichment facilities, for so example. Almost like a bit of a head start, really. You've yeah. got the domestic capacity or, or facilities um, that other countries might see that and say, like, oh... They're almost able to, to go and initiate that nuclear weapons exactly. program. They've got the facilities, but they're not quite there yet. They haven't done it yet, but we're now keeping an eye on them. Yeah. Um, um, and that's one of the issues uh, that's been raised uh, with the, the AUKUS announcement and, and the idea of Australia being the first non-nuclear weapons state, so the first state that doesn't have nuclear weapons, to have nuclear-propelled submarines because some of those submarine designs use, or all nuclear-propelled submarines use nuclear material which in some regard gives you a degree of latency because you have material that in principle if you then built the infrastructure around it you could enrich to, to build a bomb so it, it doesn't mean you can build a bomb next week mm. but it puts you that little bit closer than if you didn't have access to that material right so that's one of the controversies around it um, which i guess gets us to the question of non-proliferation and so that's a, a phrase we hear a lot people talk about non-proliferation this and non-proliferation that all it really means is stopping the spread so proliferation is just a fancy word for spread having more of it growth of something um, and so when we talk about nuclear non-proliferation it's about trying to stop uh, trying to um, prevent new states from developing nuclear weapons so trying to keep the numbers as, as low as possible there are nine states in the international system that have nuclear weapons if you're interested in non-proliferation you're interested in keeping it at nine basically yeah. <laughs> um, doesn't necessarily mean you're interested in disarmament in getting rid of them or abolition you might be quite happy that those nine have them you might be happy with how many they have and all the rest uh, but if non-proliferation is your goal, it means you don't want there to be a 10th or 11th, 12th, so forth. Does that almost play a role in what we discussed about the extended de deterrence? So where you've got a superpower like the US wanting to extend that umbrella to other states, almost to prevent, as you said, the proliferation, increasing the number of, of nuclear players out there? Yeah, that's certainly one of the arguments put forward in favour of extended deterrence. Um, people look at states... Uh, like, for example, Japan and South Korea, who both have a relatively high degree of nuclear latency. They have civilian nuclear programs, they have the ability, or at least more ability than others, if they wanted to, to develop a nuclear weapons um, capability. And one of the reasons uh, it is said that they haven't is that, well, they don't need to because the Americans give them that extended deterrence guarantee. And so then the logic of that says, well, the extended deterrence guarantee gets withdrawn perhaps Tokyo and Seoul, perhaps Canberra, whoever it is, mm. think about their choices a bit differently. Yeah, know? absolutely. So it could be a, a double part, double um, sort of role for that extended deterrence guarantee. Yeah. And then your last one was mutually assured destruction. So that kind of gets us back to the deterrence idea. So mutually assured destruction, or MAD, our favourite acronym in the nuclear world, um, particularly the critics of, <laughs> of that policy, they well, it is MAD, right? Um, basically, it's about two mutual deterrence relationships or a mutual deterrence relationship, two states who are mutually deterring each other. So it's not just that I'm aiming my nuclear weapons at you and saying, don't do X, we're both doing the same thing. I'm aiming mine at you, you're aiming yours back at me. The only reason I'm not attacking you is because I'm scared of the, repro the, uh, the response from you where you would uh, respond in kind. So therefore, we are both mutually deterred and we're deterred by mutual destruction. And it has to be assured in the sense that I have to be absolutely sure that if I did attack you, if I did attack your forces, I could wipe them all out, I yep. could completely destroy you. All right? um, if I think that you have the ability to respond, I'm not going to attack you first because even if you have one left over, 
that's going to be enough to deter me, right? So that's why states will often have larger nuclear arsenals than you might expect them to, because you've got to have a large-ish arsenal to be able to survive the first strike and still have some left over for the response. Otherwise, you're not going to deter that first strike. Okay. Well, from, from there, we might jump into um, nuclear treaties. So you mentioned the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which is one of the more newer ones. Mm. Um, there's also the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is often just abbreviated to NPT. So what are the significance of these treaties, um, and particularly the NPT? Yeah, so they're interesting in that something like the NPT, where uh, it identifies five states who had already developed nuclear weapons before the treaty was negotiated. Um, so it's basically, uh, it's the United States, Russia, it was then the Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, Britain, France and China. And uh, those states had already tested their weapons before this treaty was negotiated. And so they're basically classed under the treaty as they're okay to have them. Uh, yep. <laughs> the treaty has some nice words about we'd like to see them get rid of them and so forth, but there's nothing in the treaty uh, that legally obliges them to do so uh, in any kind of timeline. Technically, they're legally obliged to be getting rid of their weapons, but there's no date put on it, so they can just always argue, well, we are. Nothing we're, we're binding, on, really. Nothing binding. We're on the road to it, right? Yeah. Nobody hold their breath, but, you know, we're getting there. Everybody else, every other state that signs that treaty is saying, we will not develop nuclear weapons now or ever. And so it becomes a bit of a puzzle because you sort of think, well, why would states sign that? That sounds like a really bad deal. Mm. They get to keep their weapons and we don't get to have any. And the basic logic that has made it such a successful treaty, it's one of the most um, uh, highly adhered to treaties in the world, has more signatories than most treaties, and most states have stayed within the treaty. In fact, only one state has ever withdrawn from it. The reason they do it is not because they're great, you know, good states who just think, I need to set a positive example for anyone else and so forth, not because they don't trust themselves in the future or anything like that. It's actually because they don't trust their neighbours. Right. So the idea is I sign it because I want you to sign it and I want the country next door to you and the country next door to them. So basically it kind of works strangely. It, it, this sounds counterintuitive, but it works out of mutual mistrust. We all mistrust each other enough that it actually makes sense if we all sign this treaty to ensure that we keep weapons out of each other's hands. Yeah. Um, and that's why people worry about the treaty. It's been very successful. It's kept um, proliferation to relatively small numbers. As we said, only nine states. There's almost 200 states in the international system, so it's pretty good going. Not bad numbers, really. Seems to work, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but there's this sort of perennial concern about it being very fragile, mm. and I think it's because of that logic of mistrust, right? You would only need a few states to withdraw and change their mind for the logic not to work anymore for everyone else. And you sort of think, well, if those three states have withdrawn, who else is next? And actually, am I doing my nation a disservice by adhering to this treaty that no one else is adhering to? Mm. Uh, so we've only had one state withdrawal, which was North Korea in 2003. And there were concerns that that might start a sort of a cascade of withdrawals. It hasn't happened, so that's great. Um, but there is, yeah, there's constant concern that the NPT is under stress. It's kind of fragile. Um, and you mentioned the other treaty, the Nuclear Ban Treaty. This is interesting that it's cropped up in the last few years uh, where a bunch of states, non-nuclear weapon states, have basically said, look, we've kept our side of the deal, we've done our side of the bargain, we haven't built nuclear weapons. You states with the nuclear weapons who are sort of technically allowed to have them under the treaty but are meant to be getting rid of them aren't. Right? You were, the numbers were going down, but you've really slowed down and there's no sign of progress and actually things are looking slightly worse in that regard. 
it's time to get serious about actually abolishing these things. We need a new treaty that actually just outlaws them. Yeah. So the argument was we have a chemical weapons convention that bans chemical weapons, biological weapons convention that bans biological weapons. Why don't we have a treaty that just outright bans nuclear weapons? Why are we always looking at stopping the spread, uh, limiting tests, sort of tinkering around the edges? Uh, so it's really come from a sense of frustration on the part of many states that progress towards nuclear abolition has just been too slow, uh, particularly after the Cold War, uh, where there was this initial rush of bringing nuclear weapons numbers down, but then it's sort of stagnated. And so it does feel a little bit like we've hit a moment in the global nuclear order in which time appears to be running out a little bit. And this bargain on, that's struck as part of the NPT might not stand forever and people are starting to get frustrated looking for other avenues and so forth. And so there's a little bit of a division now between those who want more, uh, I guess if you like, more radical, faster progress on abolition, and saying we need this new treaty, and those who are taking the more, I mean, if you like, kind of small-c conservative approach of saying, look, the NPT works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't upset the apple cart. It's not perfect, yep. but, you know, it's better than it could be. Um, so these treaties are sort of trying to keep a lid, trying to manage nuclear relations in some regard, trying to put... So it, none of these treaties, of course, would, would stop a state using nuclear weapons if they want to use them, but the idea is if you can keep the numbers of them as low as possible, if you can keep the amount of states that have them as low as possible, you can, you've got a better chance, basically, of managing relations and ultimately avoiding a, a nuclear exchange. Yeah, I guess it's just trying to mitigate... Yeah, that's right. Um, the issue yeah. from just spiralling out of control. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like seen with the arms race um, exactly. history. Yep. Now, you mentioned the, the precedence that North Korea sets, being the only state to leave the NPT. Do you think this makes the treaty less significant? And what do you think the future holds for the NPT? Look, it's a really good question. Um, I don't think it necessarily makes the treaty less significant. Um, there's always been a couple of states who have not signed, who have stayed out of it. Right? Um, and the three that we you know, care about are the three who have actually developed nuclear weapons and never signed the treaty. So that's uh, Israel, India and Pakistan. So it's three states. And because they developed their nuclear weapons after the treaty was negotiated, unless you're going to reword, going to open up the, the wording of the treaty again and renegotiate, there's no way of them joining it without giving up their nuclear weapons. Right. They can only join as non-nuclear weapon states. Um, so the, the barrier is fairly high. No one is expecting them to join anytime soon. Yeah. So you've got three states on the outside already, and then you've got one state who left. And, I mean, I think the thing about the North Korean case that is more concerning is they left and developed nuclear weapons. This is something we often forget, that if you withdrew from the treaty, that doesn't necessarily mean that you were going to build nuclear weapons the next week. Right? You might just withdraw and say... I don't want to be bound by this anymore. I'm not saying I'm developing nuclear weapons now, but maybe I want the option to 30 years from now, right? Whereas the North Koreans withdrew in 2003, tested in 2006. There's no ambiguity about... It was quite clear their intentions. It's pretty sure what we're doing. That's yep. right. Um, and so the concern there is, well, in principle, the logic that they uh, used for leaving, they said, look, we face threats from states, and they said we face a threat from the United States. And this was at a time in which the US had just invaded Iraq and the US president had given a major speech saying that um, US national security policy was all going to be about preemption now. This is in the aftermath of the 9-11 attack saying, we're not going to wait for threats to come to us. We've got to be on the front foot. And he identified three states as being what he called an axis of evil that were both sponsoring terrorism and developing weapons of mass destruction. 
basically said these three states are fair game. Right? And it was Iraq, Iran, North Korea. Well, Iraq got invaded and the two proliferation problems we've had in the years since, Iran and North Korea. And the North Koreans just came out and said it and just said, well, we'd love to be in the treaty, but it's not in our national interest to do so because we face a threat because they're going to come and invade us and all the rest. Um, the Iranians have taken a different path. They've stayed within the treaty uh, and they argue that they are a member in good standing of the treaty. They have at the same time been hedging their bets in a big way. They've been about as nuclear latent as you can get. Yeah. Um, and so there's been this big question of are they militarising their civilian nuclear program? Are they developing a, a clandestine uh, weapons program? So these have been the two sort of tensions there. Um, and in some ways, North Korea just outright leaving does less damage than Iran's approach, which is to stay within the treaty and maybe be developing a program out the back door, right? Because that really undermines things. At least with North Korea, you know where you stand and you say, okay, well, we can put them in the category with Israel, India and Pakistan now. They're just outside the treaty. Nothing we can do about that. So there's that. And then also the, the good news is that, we, as I said, we haven't seen any more withdrawals since. Now, that doesn't mean we won't in the future, but the good thing is that there wasn't um, the kind of uh, domino effect. There wasn't the cascade straight away. Well, if the North Koreans are leaving, we're out too. And I mean, the states you would think might uh, consider that would be Japan and South Korea, those who are most threatened by a North Korean nuclear weapons program. Yeah. Uh, so the good news is it's it's holding strong-ish <laughs> so far. But yeah, I don't think anyone um, would say that the the NPT is something that we can just kind of put our feet up on the desk and, and sit back and relax and let it run. It, it sort of runs itself. It's something that kind of always needs constant care and attention, as it were. Yeah, ongoing maintenance. That's right, yeah. Um, just thought about what the current political issues are between states, whether they're members or non-members exactly. and that sort yeah. of thing. Yep. Now, recently, at the time of recording, there's a review conference into the NBT. That's Can right. you just give us a bit of insight into what that, what's the purpose behind that conference and any potential outcomes or what we should look out for? Yeah, sure. So um, basically when the NPT was signed in 1968, uh, it was only meant to – it was going to come into force um, – well, it came into force when it reached a particular number of signatories. That happened in 1970. Uh, and then it was going to be with us uh, for the next 25 years. And the, the date was set, said, okay, 25 years after coming into force, there would be a review conference to review progress. And this gets us back to this issue of – whether the nuclear armed states have actually done enough to keep their side of the bargain, right? Uh, that was part of it. The, the states who signed up said, we won't develop nuclear weapons, said, well, we're not just going to take your word for this. We're going to meet again in 25 years. You should have made some progress by them. Mm. So that was 1995. Um, and so they had the major conference in 1995, which was to decide what would happen with the treaty. And there was a couple of different options. One was let it go, right? It's It lasted for the time period it was meant to, and... We don't think it's worth keeping. We don't need to extend it. Uh, the next was to sort of extend it for, say, another set period of time. could be another 25 years or it could be another 10 years or whatever. Or it could be to extend it indefinitely, just have it as a treaty that stands. We don't need to um, have a discussion about uh, its existence every five years or 10 years or whatever. Uh, that was a pretty fraught conference. Um, there was a lot of very difficult diplomacy. There were a lot of states very opposed to, particularly to indefinite extension, because they were basically saying, look, that's just going to give you a, a blank check 
to keep your nuclear weapons for as long as you want them, and we're still going to be in the same situation where we don't have them. It imposes restrictions on a state's sovereign rights uh, for such a indefinitely. Which exactly. Of course, many states would be opposed to that. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sort of runs counter to everything you think of in terms mm. of national sovereignty and defence policy, foreign policy, all the rest, right? But after some, uh, I say some, after an enormous amount of very uh, energetic, very careful uh, diplomacy. Um, they, the states who were in favour of indefinite extension, which tended to be the nuclear-armed states who do rather well out of the treaty, as well as lots of other non-nuclear-armed states who basically want to keep everyone else non-nuclear-armed and just want to keep a lid on things, uh, managed to negotiate an indefinite extension. So in 95, it was agreed that the treaty would be indefinitely extended. And then the only sort of caveat to that was that every five years, the states' party, so the states who have signed the treaty, would meet uh, at the UN uh, headquarters in New York and review progress in the five years. And this is meant to keep each other to account. Yeah. So you can't just turn up and, and give these nice flowery statements and say, yes, we believe in a world without nuclear weapons, we're doing everything we can and so forth. You've got to actually set out some goals and then five years later come back and review them and say, well, what happened? And the idea is that if you haven't met the goals you said you wouldn't five years ago, I mean, it's not like um, there's not a direct punishment or anything like that, but that... It, maybe states won't stay within the treaty. Maybe there'll be a degree of accountability here. So they get held every five years. Um, they've been a mix in terms of it seems to depend on what's happening in global politics in general, sort of geopolitics, tensions and so forth, and in nuclear politics uh, in terms of what happens at any one time. So in terms of saying, well, you know, they get to the end of the five-year review conference and it, they tend to be thought of as a, a big success if they result in an agreed statement at the end, if all the states' parties can agree on you know, a set of, sort of nice aspirations and things, yeah. and maybe some concrete steps that we might do. And some of them have resulted in that. Some of them have resulted in um, complete disarray and um, conflict and tension and so forth and no agreed statement. Uh, the last one was like that. Um, I was there in New York in 2015 and it was tense <laughs> at the General Assembly. There was, uh, there was a whole bunch of really um, well, issues that were sort of coming to a head, particularly the Iranian issue and concerns about proliferation in the Middle East. Uh, and there was no agreed upon statement and there wasn't a sense of much progress. And then, as I said, the next review conference was meant to be held in 2020. Good old COVID hits. Um, it was going to then be in 2021. So it's finally happening right now. Uh, so as we're recording this, it's happening the first week. It's a four-week conference. First week is this week. Um, and there'll be a couple of big sticking points. One will be uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the degree to which states are willing to criticise Russia or make criticisms of Russia a central point of any sort of agreed-upon statements or anything. Uh, of course, um, NATO allies, other Western states are going to be very keen to mm. do this, right? And to call out Russian, um, what they think of as Russian nuclear aggression, what the Russians would think of as, no, that's how deterrence works. You, you make a threat and you say, don't do this or we'll hit you back, right? Um, and it would seem to be that there is a lot of states who a lot of non-nuclear weapon states, particularly from the developing world, who are more interested in saying, this is actually a treaty about nuclear weapons, about you know trying to reduce the numbers and eventually get rid of the numbers of nuclear weapons. We're, we're not supporting Russia. We don't necessarily, we're not on their side, I think, but we're not interested in making you know sort of high moral statements about what Russia hasn't done. We want to talk about progress on nuclear disarmament. So they don't want to see it as a distraction. This is probably going to be a bit of a sticking point um, and I think could actually end up in, in being one of the major issues, which in in a way 
despite the fact that I think there are some really important things that the Russians should be called out on, I think it's actually going to be a bit of a pity to lose potential progress on really non-glamorous but important concrete progress, you know, little diplomatic initiatives and things on nuclear issues uh, for the sake of making a, a statement on Russia which isn't going to actually change anything, right? Almost a bit of a distraction, really. It's yeah, like, and I think that's fairly likely to be the case. A couple of other things, um, the relationship between the NPT and this new ban treaty. So the states who have signed the ban treaty, who are big fans of it, uh, they argue that this works perfectly with the NPT. In fact, the ban treaty is almost like actually doing the NPT as it was originally envisaged. Uh, those who are opposed to it, which are those who have nuclear weapons, they don't want to give them up, say, well, no, this is a distraction. This is really bad to divide the non-proliferation uh, regime into two camps. And so finding some way of making a public statement about how the two treaties work together I think is going to be one of the big issues and not easy to to sort out. And then the third one actually involves us because <laughs> it's the good old uh, nuclear-powered submarines. So there's a lot of disquiet about that amongst those who care about non-proliferation. Um, it's entirely legal under the NPT to use nuclear-powered submarines, even by a non-nuclear weapon state. It's something that's been referred to for decades since the signing of it as the, the loophole, as the submarine loophole. It's technically legal, uh, but it sits, of course, somewhat awkwardly with the spirit, right? If the treaty is meant to be about stopping states from developing weapons, keeping nuclear material out of their hands, uh, keeping um, the institution, the multilateral institution that's sort of in charge of these areas, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, having them have as much oversight as possible, doing inspections and all these sorts of things, so that everyone is assured that we're all playing along and doing our part of the treaty and no one's developing a, a sort of dodgy nuclear weapons program in the backyard type thing. If that's the idea of the treaty, well, then a non-nuclear weapon state having nuclear material, even if it's a border submarine, in fact, actually, particularly if it's a border submarine, because it's really difficult to inspect it because these are out at sea, they're meant to be stealthy um, and all the rest. So it kind of sits awkwardly with what the NPT is trying to achieve. And so that's why uh, basically up until now, up until late last year, uh, most states who were very keen on non-proliferation, including Australia, were very um, keen to ensure that no one did exploit this loophole. States have talked about it, the Canadians talked about it, the Brazilians have talked about it for a long time. They've actually got a program, they're hoping to do it. South Korea talked about it at one stage, the Iranians even talked about it at one stage. Everyone's been very down on it because it's not a great idea to have more nuclear material out there. Australia, the United States and the UK have now changed our mind on that because we'd like Australia to have nuclear-powered submarines. And there's a whole bunch of states, including some of our neighbours, including Indonesia, Malaysia... A couple of others a little bit more quietly, but they're still sort of pushing in that direction, who are really saying, look, are you sure you want to go down this path? And it's not necessarily a concern about Australia. They don't think Australia's going to develop nuclear weapons next year or anything like that. Now, they may not be so um, excited about the future, and who knows what Australia wants to do in 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, two years ago, we didn't want nuclear-powered submarines, right? But it's also about the precedent it sets. So the idea is even if they say, look, we trust you, Australia, and we trust the US and we trust the UK, and we're sure you guys will do a really good job in terms of proliferation standards and safeguards and it'll be inspected as much as it can be and all the rest. But who else do we trust with that? Who do we trust, say, the Russians to have a similar engage, similar uh, proposal with, or the Chinese? You know, a Russia-Iran proposal for Iranian nuclear-powered submarines, are we going to be as excited about that? So it's this idea of sort of opening the floodgates, and it's Australia being the first one, and that's what I mean by they're not so concerned about Australia, but it's it's what precedent does this set? 
not necessarily a, a dangerous precedent, but it's it's certainly one that you need to take into consideration with with the other members of the NPT who are the non-nuclear members, as you said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in the eyes of some, it could be a dangerous precedent. I mean, they might look at this and say, this was the start of... We, we used to think of non-proliferation in pretty black and white terms. Either you're proliferating or you're not. You know, Either you've got nuclear weapons or you don't, and that's what we're trying to keep it that way. And this may well be the start of what we think of as sort of watering that down, of sort of conditional proliferation. Well, you're okay, we trust you. And that then opened the floodgates, and then before you know it, you just have no, more nuclear material out there, and, and the task of non-proliferation is just that much harder. Yeah. So on that on that idea, what what's Australia's nuclear posture? Uh, what's their perspective that we take as a nation on nuclear weapons and nuclear latency? Yeah. And what do you think the implications of that are going to be for our region? So the Australian position is actually a really interesting one. Um, and there's a couple of other states that uh, sit in a similar position to us in that we're somewhat, the phrase is often used, is somewhat Janus-faced. We sort of sit um, in, we hold two positions at once, as it were. On the one hand, uh, always been a very vocal supporter of um, non-proliferation and particularly of uh, diplomacy, multilateral efforts around this. In general, fairly kind of, if you like, anti-nuclear weapons. Yep. Um, don't want to see a world awash with nuclear weapons, want to keep a lid on the arms race, all the rest. Um, and have been a pretty active uh, participant, particularly in multilateral forums. There's been lots of occasions where Australia's actually gone out of its way to sort of champion particular treaties um, or take a particular diplomatic initiative that it really didn't need to do. Um, on the other hand, there's two things that put us in a slightly different position. One is that we have natural reserves of uranium. So we mine uranium and, and sell it to others. Um, and that means to some degree we are providing the fuel that eventually goes into either civilian nuclear programs or goes into weapons programs. To build a bomb, at the heart of it, you need uranium. It's got to come from somewhere. Yep. Uh, and there's a small collection of states who mine it because they've got natural reserves of it and they make good money out of that. Uh, and we're one of those states. So obviously those who are very anti-uranium mining say, look, you can do everything you want in terms of non-proliferation and safeguards and inspections, but you're running after the bus. Like, what doesn't exist can't proliferate. So stop digging the thing up, then we won't have a problem, right? So Australia, of course, for just simple monetary reasons, um, yeah, we're one of the few countries that have recoverable uranium reserves and the ability to mine it, ship it, and sell it uh, at scale. So we make reasonable money out of that. Um, but then also, of course, as we said earlier, we receive an extended deterrence guarantee from the US. So Australia uh, speaks a lot about wanting a world free of nuclear weapons, um, does all sorts of little diplomatic initiatives and so forth about nuclear abolition. But ultimately, we uh, benefit from, if you think it's a benefit, from a deterrence guarantee of the Americans having a nuclear weapons stockpile. So when the Americans talk about reducing their stockpile, if you think about that logically, that's not necessarily good news for Australia. So that's where Australia sits in this kind of funny position somewhere in between. It's a very, very interesting spot, Australia, because we have this, as you said, public opposition to proliferation and mm. acquiring nuclear weapons but then it's a bit rich coming from us given we've got that coverage under the u.s deterrence and also as one of the major world suppliers of uranium do we have a responsibility as a nation to ensure that the supply of uranium uh, is responsible that we monitor who who acquires our uranium and the purposes that it's used for? Yeah, look, I think we do, and Australia certainly, um, the official government line has always been that to agree with that. So yes, we do. We have very um, 
important responsibilities uh, that so they would, of course, because we do export uranium, they would reject the idea that any exporting of uranium is in some way kind of in an indirect way fueling the problem, but they would say there are really important things that uranium exporters can do which can mitigate problems. Um, and this is about putting safeguards around who uh, we export to and what they use it for. Um, and so the idea is that Australia says we don't export to states uh, for use in weapons programs. Yeah. We only export for the use of um, civilian energy production, electricity production, basically. There's a few other small um, uses, things like medical isotopes and things, but it's mainly the production of energy, um, nuclear power plants. And... Um, so then Australia, again, is involved in all sorts of diplomatic activities, particularly with the International Atomic Energy Agency. We have a very close relationship with the IAEA um, and we do all sorts of research into what's called things like nuclear forensics and uh, nuclear safeguards, nuclear inspections, doing all the things that can try and ensure that the material that a state like Australia is exporting isn't used for purposes that we don't want it to be used for. All right. Um, that can be harder than it sounds <laughs> kind of sounds straightforward okay great good for australia well done uh but for example um when we decided that in the mid-2000s that we would follow suit with others and export um uranium to india for example the argument was well what we don't want to be doing is exporting uranium to um india for use in their weapons program you know we uh we are opposed to their weapons program they should get rid of it join the npt all the rest they said, but we've got no problem necessarily with sending them some uranium to use in their power program. But if you think about that logically, if they've got a particular reserve of uranium, they've got nuclear material that they can use and they've got both a power program and a weapons program, if you're giving them more for their power program, well, that's just freeing up material for them to move from their existing stockpile into the weapons program. Yep. So by default, you are helping them. Counterproductive really on our, on our part. Yeah, and that's where there is, I think, a, a, a genuine Australian concern about proliferation which comes crashing into a genuine Australian interest in making money from selling uranium. And sometimes the, the monetary interest just flat out wins out. Yeah. And there's lots of flowery talk about it and lots of turning ourselves inside out and making arguments to say we're not being hypocritical, we're not you know contradicting ourselves here, it's all perfect. But anyone who looks at it it's somewhat objectively said, well, come on, <laughs> you are giving them more uranium, they're building their weapons stockpile, okay, you've just decided that the money is... is worth more than keeping the Indian stockpile as small as it can get. Yeah, it's about reading between the, between the lines, yeah. really. And um, it's, it's a, it, there's nothing unique to Australia about this. Mm. I mean, states, hypocrisy is part of international relations, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we see this quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Now, we might just briefly discuss what do you think the potential is for an Australian nuclear weapons program? Do you think it's necessary? Do you think evolving situations in the Asia-Pacific uh, pose enough of a threat to Australia that we may at some stage down the line pursue this option? So this has really become, um, the, if you like, the $6 million question at the moment. Um, it's actually worth noting that really only, like I would say, five years ago, that question would have seemed ridiculous, just yeah. absurd, would have been laughed out of the room for asking it, right? And in the last five years or so, that's become a, a genuine part of national debate. A um, number of colleagues here have written things publicly, uh, not necessarily advocating for it, but saying we need to have this discussion again. Uh, it's discussed on you know, the national media, sort of mainstream media and so forth. So it's back on the agenda. Um, and that tells us things about uh, Australia's position in its neighbourhood and how it looks at the world. And, and basically it gives us a sense of um, how insecure 
uh, Australia and perhaps the, even the Australian electorate is feeling about international relations and regional relations at the current time, that that's now back on, doesn't mean that everyone's in favour of it, but just the fact that we're talking about it openly as a, a genuine possibility. Um, I personally don't see a rationale for it currently. Um, one of the reasons I think it's a, not a, a particularly good idea is it's actually getting back to that logic as to why states sign the NPT. It's not so much that it wouldn't give Australia an advantage. Obviously, it would. But who else follows suit? So I sort of look at our region and look at the changing distribution of power in the world more broadly and think, if you're worried about that now, what's that going to look like when you add on top of that five, six, seven, maybe 10, 15 new nuclear-armed states? Um, because I'm a bit of a nuclear pessimist, I kind of look at nuclear crises and think, gee whiz, we got through some of them you know, really, really close. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were unbelievably close to a full-scale nuclear exchange. Skin of our teeth, really. Skin of our teeth. I kind of think the more nuclear, more states you have out there armed with nuclear weapons, you're just creating more opportunities for crisis, just purely on numbers. So to me, keeping the numbers as low as humanly possible is just a good thing in any and all circumstances. So I kind of think a, a state like Australia or others who might be um, tempted to rethink their position in years to come, could be Japan, South Korea, even Taiwan. This is just in Asia. There's others around the world. Um, yeah, the Iranians have obviously had some pretty um, uh, in-depth discussions about it, and the Saudis think about it as well and so forth. I just think what they want to be thinking about is not the immediate short-term benefit, but what happens to the environment around them in the, say, 10, 20 years after that. The idea that Australia would develop nuclear weapons and our neighbours would just shrug and say, oh, well. May as well do it the same. <laughs> yeah, and that, I think, is a, a potentially much worse environment for Australia to exist in. So that's why it doesn't make sense to me as a, as a rationale. Um, do I think we, we might end up in that regard? I mean, you know, just because I don't think it's a good idea doesn't mean that it, it won't happen. There's all sorts of things I think are a good idea that all sorts of governments do. Uh, I don't think so at present. Um, but what I would say is, hypothetically, let's say in 10 years, 15 years from now, if uh, we had seen even a mini cascade of states leaving the NPT and perhaps testing or getting very close to it and so forth, it wouldn't surprise me if Australia uh, developed at least a very high degree of latency. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got to remember how quickly these things can change. I remember, as I said, a couple of years ago, Australia was making everywhere it could publicly saying, we don't want nuclear-powered submarines. We want diesel-powered submarines. In fact, we were paying the French to reconstitute a nuclear-powered submarine into a diesel-powered submarine because we didn't want a nuclear one, and then we decided to rip up that contract, pay a kill fee for it and, and get the Americans to build us nuclear ones. So these things can change very, very quickly. Um, and a lot of it depends on how they're reading the geopolitics of the region at any one time. So remaining in Australia's backyard, looking at latent states in the Asia-Pacific, we've got the rising threat of China, their nuclear program, instability on the Korean peninsula, North Korea, South Korea, and various other latent nuclear states. What do you think the future looks like for nuclear weapons in this region and particularly relating it to Australia's position? So, sand to say, I've got a relatively pessimistic answer on that one. Uh, my sense of where things are going in Asia, in, in Australia's neck of the woods, is that nuclear weapons are becoming more rather than less important to defence postures, to strategic relations. Um, part of that is... 
uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the big sort of driver is we have a changing distribution of power and China is becoming much more powerful. It, was, it grew rich. That Those riches are now being translated into other areas, including military power. And that just means that in our region, which traditionally we'd had one dominant power, the United States, uh, and that's interesting in and of itself because that's an extra regional power. It's a state from outside the region geographically was the, the dominant military player. And that's now shifting. And it doesn't mean that the United States is going to have no role. They're clearly still going to be one of the major players. But that's the change. They're going from being the major player to one of. That shifting balance of power is driving decisions in the nuclear realm. Uh, So, for example, uh, China's nuclear program has, its nuclear weapons program, has traditionally been uh, relatively small, quite sort of um, minimalist, as it were. They refer to it as a minimum deterrent. Um, They've clearly had both the nuclear material and the money to pay for a larger nuclear weapons capability, particularly in recent years than they've had, and they've chosen not to. They've wanted to put their money into other things, and that's made sense for them. Uh, They now appear to be approaching a point where they're looking at developments, particularly on the US side, not necessarily actually in um, uh, nuclear weapons, but actually in non-nuclear weapons, um, but in uh, conventional weapons that can strike an, an adversary's nuclear capabilities. And in um, sort of interesting, what we often refer to as sort of emerging or new technology areas. Not all that's actually new, but there's um, things that have been have been on the on the sort of um, drawing boards for years, and now starting to be deployed. So things like anti-satellite weaponry, uh, cyber attacks, anti-submarine warfare, all this sort of stuff. Uh, hypersonic missiles is part of this story as well. Uh, and so the Chinese are very concerned about their nuclear stockpile being too vulnerable, that they won't have that mutually assured destruction relationship. Because actually they think the Americans might get to a point where they're not going to be deterred from striking first because they think they can hit everything. And so one of the ways you respond to that is you make yourself a harder target. You just make yourself a bigger target to hit. You you raise that question mark. You're sure you can get everything in that first strike. And you're really sure you get absolutely everything. Because if you're not, you're not going to do it, right? And so uh, recently it has um, become apparent that they're planning to expand their land-based missile program. That makes perfect sense to me it's what i would do if i was in beijing trying to make myself a a harder target there's kind of two things you can do from their point of view you can either build more land-based missiles or you can build quieter submarines that are harder to find and and um, uh, dispose of they are trying to build quieter submarines but that is a really difficult expensive task missiles are relatively cheap to build yeah especially if you've been building them for years um i've thought for some time they're going to do both but i will eat my hat if they don't massively expand their land-based missiles and what do you know that's been the recent um, announcement which of course we've met with kind of shock and horror and surprise and all the rest but there's really nothing terribly surprising about it if you develop weapons they're going to make them feel more vulnerable you should expect them to respond yeah absolutely sort of logical right um so that's really driving things as you said the korean peninsula is sort of always bubbling away as well so um on that i'm actually a little more optimistic um I tend to think of, I think all the evidence we've seen from North Korea so far is that its nuclear program in particular is genuinely, they think it genuinely serves a defensive purpose for them. It's about stopping them being invaded. They're a small, very vulnerable authoritarian regime who is therefore perennially paranoid and insecure. And what they care about is their own regime, the Kim family's survival. Uh, And I think they see that nuclear deterrence works rather well and they want a slice of that pie. So they're developing a a deterrent. Um, They've been testing um, 
conducting nuclear tests in terms of getting the warhead right and then testing missiles at every range possible to make themselves look like a target that another state, whether that be the US, whether that be South Korea, whether that be Japan, whether that be a combination of all three and someone else, whatever, wouldn't want to attack. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're kind of making themselves a very spiky porcupine, as it were. <laughs> you know? um, that I see as being not an ideal um, development in the region, but ultimately if they can settle into a relatively stable deterrence relationship, and particularly if it's the United States that they really care about, if they can deter the United States from coming for them, um, which by developing long-range missiles that can actually hit the US and developing other short-range ones that can hit US bases in South Korea and Japan and so forth, they probably can, I don't think we will necessarily see major crises there. We, we may still. Um, and again, this is all kind of based on fairly rational assumptions about all of this, right? You then have... We saw in 2017 Donald Trump came to power in the United States and decided that he wanted to really stick it to the North Koreans and then they responded and come on and so forth. So in any situation like that, it, when it's sort of simmering, it can always boil over. Someone can always turn the heat up on the stove, as it were, to use the analogy. Um, but I'm a bit less worried about that. I'm more worried about um, not so much kind of nuclear... Well, not crises that are driven by nuclear weapons, but other tensions and crises and flashpoints. Um, I mean, recently we've seen the Taiwan issue back on the agenda, I'm more worried about something like that that mm. then escalates all right. around. So not starting with a nuclear decision per se, that in other words, nukes could be sort of irrelevant to what sparks the um, the flashpoint, but the problem is that that can escalate all the way up to the nuclear level. Yeah. That's what concerns me, yeah. So it's multiple flashpoints within the region that, yeah. given the the latency of multiple states and you've you've got several... Nuclear armed states already. Yep. Um, there's certainly that potential for proliferation and the spread. Yeah, and and I think worse is ultimately I think we need to sort of reconcile ourselves with the fact that there is the potential for nuclear use. Right. Mm. Any crisis. I mean, no war starts as being planned as a full scale war. Everyone thinks this was just a, a minor incident. We're going to sort this out next week, and then things escalate and escalate and escalate. Before you know it, you're at war. And everyone thinks that a war is going to be quick and over. Everyone's confident at the outset of a war. Look at the Russians at the beginning of this year, right? Everyone thinks that their military forces will always prevail. What concerns me is that in a crisis situation where you have more chances for escalation and chances for miscalculation as well, um, signalling is always very difficult in crises. We sort of tend to talk about these things in sort of bargaining theory in perfectly rational ways, but it never plays out quite like that in the real world because the real world's messy. Uh, so these are the things that kind of concern me and that when you've got nuclear armed states who have more nuclear weapons and their nuclear weapons are playing a higher role in their defence postures, you're just increasing the chances all the time of not just of the spread of weapons but actually one of these things being used. You mentioned a little while ago um, increases in technology and defence mechanisms and I think you mentioned hypersonic missiles. Sure. Part of what your research is, is in the third nuclear age. Do you mind explaining what the rise of strategic non-nuclear weapons is and how they change the game of nuclear politics? Sure, yeah. So this is something I've been involved in uh, for a couple of years and, and, and still working on. There's a number of us uh, across a number of countries who are trying to map out uh, a number of trends that we see as being increasingly important currently. Um, and this is, as you say, it's this idea of not necessarily nuclear politics only being driven by developments in nuclear weapons, not just about you know uh, larger warheads or missiles that can travel longer, whatever it is, but actually developments in the non-nuclear field. Um, and 
we use slightly different terminology for this. It gets a bit confusing. No one's quite settled on the one they want. Um, sometimes we call it advanced conventional weapons. Sometimes we call it strategic non-nuclear weapons. It's all driving at the same thing. And it's, it's basically any non-nuclear capability, conventional capability, that can in some way compromise an adversary's nuclear forces. And you can do that in all sorts of ways. Um, we often talk about it being either kinetic or non-kinetic. Kinetic just means you hit something. Yep. <laughs> so it can be uh, precision strike missiles, for example, or anti-satellite weapons that knock out satellites. It could be uh, anti-submarine warfare. It could be you know, literally a torpedo that brings down a submarine that had the nuclear weapons aboard. Or it could be non-kinetic in that it could be something uh, like a cyber attack or it could be jamming communications. Um, if I've got 40 uh, nuclear missiles out in the field ready to launch, if I can't give the launch order, or if the launch order doesn't get to them in the way it's meant to get to them, those missiles are useless. Right? They're just sitting there as targets waiting to be hit by the kinetic weapons. So there's all sorts of ways you can do that. And this is becoming a really, really important focus now, and I think this is something that's actually changing nuclear politics a bit. Um, I should say a lot of these technologies or a lot of these, at least these ideas of trying to um, compromise an adversary's capabilities in that way have been around for a long time. Um, there's nothing new about anti-satellite weaponry. Uh, one of the other technologies that we include in this is something like missile defence, right? Because if I can knock out, say you've got 100 missiles, if I can knock out 80 of them, you've only got 20 left, or if I can soak up the last 20 with my missile defence shield, your capabilities are null and void, right? So there's a defensive and offensive side of this too. Missile defence has been around for a long time. Um, what's happening now is because of technological change, a lot of these capabilities are actually becoming viable. So missile, the idea of missile defence is as old as the idea of missiles, but it's been exceptionally hard to do, and it still is. Uh, missile defence technology is still um, undergoing uh, testing and, and development um, in various countries around the world, and some of the testing rates aren't that impressive, you know, roughly a 50% strike rate of, of knocking down um, large you know, intercontinental range missiles and a 50% strike rate when you're trying to defend yourself isn't terrific. <laughs> the other 50% are still getting through. But the point is they're getting better. And that means that states now are starting to have to plan for a future in which the other side may well actually perfect the technology. Um, so in the past, you could sort of sit back and say, well, the other side have a missile defence program. Good luck to them. That's basically hitting a bullet with a bullet. I'm not worried. Right? Our, our forces are secure. We know we can retaliate. We can hit you and therefore deter you from doing anything because you can't actually defend against this. And then your defence system gets better and better and better. And I've got to start thinking to myself, gee whiz, what am I going to do about that? Because if you can defend against my response, my second strike, you're not going to be deterred from the first strike then. Why not hit me? Because when I respond, you can defend anyway, so we're good. So you see states starting to develop um, uh, decoys, um, uh, counterattack options, ways of overcoming a defence system. So things like hypersonic missiles are particularly good for that. They're fast and manoeuvrable, so they can get around missile defences. Uh, and also things like it does can change your nuclear posture. So, I mean, um, this development is, I think, specifically driving the decisions in Beijing right now. It's not, as we were saying before, it's not a coincidence that they're making themselves a harder target by developing more missiles. Um, and so what a number of us are trying to understand and analyse and map out is the implications of these changes. So we haven't really lived in a world in which the driver of major nuclear arms racing is non-nuclear technology. 
Yeah. So during the Cold War, it was I build three nukes, you build four, I build five, you build six. So it was our nuclear developments were basically spurring each other on. That's still going to be the case. That doesn't that dynamic doesn't change. But now we've got an extra level of complexity in there of non-nuclear capabilities as well. The other thing to throw into the mix of all of this is because of the nature of the technologies. We're looking at things like communications tech, satellite technology. It also brings in some private sector actors as well. Um, so, for example, if you tried to blind me in attack and knock out all my satellites so that I couldn't see your incoming attack and couldn't launch my missiles and all the rest, one of the things I might do is look to redundancy, so look to other satellites that I could use, by saying to the companies who operate satellites from my soil under my sovereign control and say, right, that satellite's ours now. And so you've got both private sector and public sector actors potentially involved in the nuclear order in ways they just haven't been up until now. So it's a, there's some new developments that are sort of pushing uh, the politics of nuclear weapons in very interesting from an academic point of view, but potentially uh, somewhat worrying directions from a policy point of view. So we're trying to get our heads around that, basically. It'll be interesting to see the future of these strategic non-nuclear weapons and, as you said, the, the government and private sector mm. actors who, who are involved and particularly how it plays out in conflicts in future. Absolutely, yeah. So just to wrap everything up, what do you think the future holds for Australia's national security leaders and what tough decisions do you think they're going to need to make in the coming years? Well, so I think the first thing to say on that is, uh, and I say this despite the fact that I work on nuclear weapons, I teach courses on nuclear weapons and all the rest, I actually say this reluctantly. I think the first thing to realise is that nuclear weapons are back. They're, they're back on the agenda. All right? um, for some time, it was thought that nuclear, the role of nuclear weapons that were still out there in the world, but they'd sort of taken a backseat role that we could worry more about other concerns in international affairs because the general trajectory on nukes was just better. There were fewer of them. It was about reducing stockpiles. There was a few little problems here and there and trying to keep the lid on proliferation, but ultimately it wasn't one of the major issues that was going to dominate um, the sort of geopolitical decision-making of the day. Unfortunately, that seems to no longer be the case and we're headed in the opposite direction. So the first thing I think that... Uh, those going into the national security realm, policy making, even policy analysis, policy advice, lobbying, even that sort of stuff. Even in Australia, I think what we've got to realise is that you've got to understand the politics of nuclear weapons and understand some of the technical details, not all of it, um, but some of the basics of it, of who's got what, who's pushing for what, what are the, the major trends, where are they going? And I think we've got to do that, um, well, I think what we should be doing is doing that carefully and in a historically informed way. Um, I mean, currently in Australia, there's often lots of discussion, lots of analysis uh, that basically assumes that because we're a bit freaked out by the fact that the distribution of power is changing in our region, suddenly China, which used to be a state that we thought about in trade terms, is now a security actor and not necessarily doing things that we want them to do, and this all looks a bit scary... We've had a bit of a freak out in that regard and therefore that anything China does is by definition sort of aggressive, um, nefarious and all the rest. And they do all sorts of nefarious, aggressive things that you know, many of us call them out on all the time. But that doesn't mean everything is, right? So, for example, the, the new um, uh, missile silos, there's a perfectly good logic behind that. And if we didn't want them to do it, we'd probably stop developing weapons that make them feel less secure. Right? Yeah. Like it, to me, it wasn't a surprise when they did that. So I think the B 
better analysts and the better policymakers are those who are able to think in those terms, to understand that, well, China has interests too. North Korea has interests too. We don't have to like them, but if we want to understand what they're doing and if we want directions, if we want trends in the region to go in the way that we want them to go, if we want a more peaceful, stable uh, region, less characterised by arms racing, we've got to be able to understand how they conceive of their interests and act accordingly. It doesn't mean um, rolling over to them every time, whatever it is, but it just means acting as if everything they do is just blindly driven by aggression and wanting to take over the world and the rest. It's just not going to cut it in terms of smart, effective decision-making and policy-making. I guess they have security concerns just as as well as we do. Just like we do, right? So trying to understand them. So one of the tasks, I think, is trying to learn about and... Uh, I think the only way you can really do this is by actually interacting with counterparts in the likes of them. It's very difficult in North Korea, but not entirely impossible to try and get a sense of how they're thinking of things. And the same in China, even when relations are bad, trying to interact with academics or whoever it is and trying to get a sense of what's the debate like there? How are they viewing this? How different is that to how we're viewing it? And then what do we do about that? How do we act accordingly? Um, And so I think... Thinking about the ways in which nuclear politics um, plays into other areas as well. Again, often we've, we've traditionally thought of nuclear weapons as being a, a sort of a standalone subject. You have nuclear experts over there. Or you go to the Department of Foreign Affairs and there's the nuclear desk. You want to talk to the, the nuclear eggheads there over there. <laughs> the reality is now, if you're on the China desk, if you're on the US desk, if you're doing things in Southeast Asia, whatever it is, you don't have to be a nuclear expert, but you ought to have some sense of some of these trends of some of this this nuclear politics because it's there whether you like it or not. Yeah. And it's one of the good things actually about um, uh, the focus on nuclear issues after the AUKUS announcement and nuclear, the nuclear subs that there is a, a general acceptance now kind of across you know, think tanks, public service, media and so forth that we actually need to be talking about nuclear issues in informed, intelligent ways it can't just be left to people who happen to be kind of nuclear experts in inverted commas so i think that would be my main sort of take home for those sort of going into the the national security area that even if nukes isn't your thing (laughs) absolutely fine there's all sorts of things we should be worrying about uh but you've got to be able to uh, get your head around these issues in some ways and engage with them to some degree yeah, certainly need to keep the historical implications of nuclear weapons Absolutely. in mind and think about current and future um, conflicts and how it will impact Australia's national security. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Zala. Um, provided a lot of valuable insights into this field and a lot of content for our delegates and other listeners to take on board. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. <laughs>